Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sounds from the Studio, brought to you by Contemporary Craft. Contemporary Craft fosters the use of traditional craft materials such as ceramic, fiber, glass, metal, and wood to make art. Our community honors the history and heritage of craft while showcasing modern, exploratory work. And since our organization is located in Pittsburgh, PA, we decided to bring some of the stories of our exhibiting and studio artists to a broader audience by way of this podcast. I'm Rachel, the Executive Director at Contemporary Craft. And I'm Camila, a podcaster and art enthusiast. We are your hosts for this journey, and there are many ways to keep up with us. You can go to the Facebook page and like it, Contemporary Craft, on Twitter at SCCPGH, Instagram at SCCPGH, or just go to ContemporaryCraft.org. And find us wherever you get your podcasts. We just ask that you please follow, rate, and review, and also share, share, share alike. At Contemporary Craft, we are excited for the upcoming opening of our Raphael Founders Prize exhibition, Transformation 11 Works in Glass, which will be on view starting September 9th. During the opening reception, we'll be announcing this year's winning artist and two honorable mentions. With this presentation of the Transformation series, we will be celebrating more than two decades of this prize, which has created an important history showcasing the contribution of emerging and established artists in the field of contemporary craft since 1997. So today on the podcast, we'll be talking with one former Raphael Prize transformation winner, Linda Swanson, who is a ceramicist. All right. Welcome, Linda Swanson. We are happy to have you here on Sounds of the Studio. How are you today? Good, thanks. Very happy to be here. Thank you again for the invitation. And congratulations for being a, a past winner or a continual winner, I'll say, of, uh, of the Raphael Prize. Yeah, it was a true honor. So, Linda, I am very excited and thrilled to be talking with you today because it was such an honor for me to have the opportunity to work with you. Um, as you probably already know, your installation uh, in Transformation 9, that exhibition was totally mesmerizing for me. The work was, I'd almost say, pivotal for me. I've uh, always been a ceramics enthusiast. Uh, it's probably what I've studied a little bit more in the, the craft field than other medium, but you might recall I photographed that work and the transformation literally of it in the gallery and something about capturing those changes uh, weekly challenged me not to just think about clay bodies, but also um, our environment and the world that we live in. And so maybe we can just start there. Like, can you share with our listeners a little bit about the work that you installed as the, the Raphael Founders Prize winner for Transformation 9? Sure. I um, had originally submitted a piece for the award that was a fired piece, but uh, upon uh, uh, the invitation to exhibit, I was invited to make a Rockley installation uh, to show alongside the fired pieces. And this is the kind of two aspects of my ceramic practice. On the one hand, I'm making pieces out of the raw materials, dry clay, um, salts, uh, the minerals that we use in ceramics uh, that we typically form and then fire uh, to see some of the changes that happen that usually take place inside the kiln, outside of the kiln. And so um, so it was really a, uh, a surprise to be invited to do the installation at um, as part of the show. And it was an opportunity 
for a very long uh, installation, maybe the longest that I've ever been invited to do. I think it ended up uh, about six months long. So there really was a chance to see the way that, um, that the elements were interacting. So what this piece involved was a field of dry clay. And in this piece, I had uh, sifted in some colorants, some uh, kind of natural colorants of iron, both red um, and black. And actually, I think there was also uh, yellow. And over time, as uh, water was suspended in a membrane up above the field of dry clay, uh, the water was slowly dripped down and become absorbed into the clay. And the clay I was using was also a very kind of particular type of uh, of clay that's super absorbent. So it's called bentonite. It's uh, used for a lot of different applications from uh, lining wells and man-made lakes to waterproofing foundations because it has this capability of absorbing uh, liquid and then kind of sealing itself off. Uh, so um, the bentonite would absorb the water and kind of swell and almost kind of bloom or blossom as it as it as it um, expanded up to about 15 times its own particle size when it when it um, when it uh, uh, absorbs the water. So it's really kind of a dramatic change that takes place without my interacting with it once it's all set up. So it almost appears a little bit alive, which is really um, kind of interesting um, uh, observationally as uh, when I was researching the material, there are these theories about the, the origin of life on earth being linked to materials like bentonite clay or the minerals that they come from. Yeah, so thank you. Fantastic definition. For people that maybe visually are trying to imagine what that looked like, uh, you had what it was a large, was that an aluminum sheet or something that steel. you just, okay, steel. And mm -hmm. so all of this powdered substance laid on top of it, what, probably maybe one to two inches off the ground. So it was very low to the ground plane. It almost felt like a landscape that you were about to embark on with those parachute sacks above it. So it I think it was also interesting because it, it really did start to feel like an environment or a landscape that you almost could become a part of, which of course you weren't allowed to walk on it, but um, <laughs> just as you, you start to imagine it. Um, but it does have a follow-up question for me, and I wonder if we can talk about Iceland for a minute, because mm -hmm. um, prior to COVID, uh, it had actually become a favorite destination of my wife and me. And I know that some of your work references glacial striations and in particular Iceland. And I, I can't remember, though, if this work did or not. Well, it's maybe not a direct uh, reference, but there was a trip that I was um, fortunate to take as a student. I received a fellowship to go to Iceland to travel. And I was going to look at the way color appeared in the natural landscape because I was starting to work with these, um, these components of incorporating gravity into my work and kind of natural forces. And I wanted to look at, at kind of naturally occurring colors. And so I went for this purpose to look at the boiling blue mud pots and the psychedelic colored algae and the, um, and the red uh, kind of almost rainbow rhyolite clays and that kind of things 
But what I experienced there was this really profound interaction between water and land and the way that the water was moving through that uh, landscape, not just with glaciers, melting glaciers uh, as part of um, just the kind of normal course of events, as well as, you know, kind of um, uh, global warming, kind of expediting those processes. But uh, but just uh, water was moving through the landscape just everywhere you looked. Um, there was a lot of rain, too. So just uh, the um, kind of general land was wet a lot of the time. And it just... I thought back to the studio and the state of wet clay and how um, how there was this beautiful change of um, or changeability in clay, the kind of potential for change when it's wet. And um, and also the changes that we see clay through, go through in the studio as it dries out. So that was what I came back wanting to work with were these two aspects of um, of ceramics, uh, a clay and um, uh, or material kind of that comprise the landscape and water and to, you know, kind of uh, develop some work around the interaction between those. Yeah, so that, that's, that's about it. I think maybe the disc that you had originally submitted for the exhibition, the large blue with the red, it was kind of crystallized. Maybe that's where I was getting that reference from more so than the the bentonite and the dripping. So thank you. Yeah, those pieces too kind of come from that original Iceland experience, believe it or not. And often when I'm kind of stuck in the studio, I'll think back to this trip that I had um, to kind of get um, some new potential directions. And so those, the, the glaze pieces were really thinking about the, um, the hot spring pools. And, uh, you know, from Iceland, they're just these gorgeous colors and, and we can achieve some of those very similar colors in, uh, in glazes. And so this is the opportunity that I have when I'm working in a fired um, situation or a firing situation as opposed to raw clay in that there's a lot more potential for developing um, intriguing colors. And so that piece for the Raphael uh, prize was really this bright um, kind of aquatic blue color, but also had um, black and red. And those were colors in the landscape uh, around some of these hot spring pools in Iceland. They're also colors that are part of, you know, um, our bodies. And so there's becomes this kind of relationship between the um, geologic and the biologic and that kind of coming through the minerals in ceramics and the minerals that occur um, both kind of within and, and, and outside of us. So making those connections. Yeah, it seems like you draw from what I'm seeing on your website. It, it's like you draw a lot of your inspiration from agriculture and nature and just science, I guess, in general. Is that? Is it yeah, I think it's maybe a default of ceramics that if you are, um, you, you become maybe more of an alchemist than a, than a, than a scientist, uh, per se, because you're using a lot of um, your sense of the materials, their qualities of the materials, rather than a kind of abstract formulation of the materials, which can be useful at times, but is um, only useful in relation to these this kind of lived experience or, or um, 
direct experience of the materials. So I think also alchemy is, um, is, involves process as well as material. And I think that is also key to the way that I'm working both again in and outside of the kiln, because in the kiln, a lot of times, um, and it's true for, for the piece that we keep referring to, I set up the materials and then let the kiln kind of make the ultimate formation of those materials. So this disc started off as like a, a big kind of crater, a kind of big bowl. And um, then it was filled with glazed materials. It actually um, flattened out in the kiln, didn't remain a bowl, kind of went perfectly flat. But then that liquid clay at high temperatures, sorry, liquid glaze rather, kind of the liquid glass of the glaze um, flows and and pools in the kind of deep crevices and and uh, becomes thin and cracks in the in the shallow spots and so it's kind of filling in the way you know kind of water fills in in a landscape so yeah I think there's a lot of affinities um, between these things so what I but what I would like to do is like for you to take us back to the first time that you sat down at a pottery wheel or first time you used a kiln or, you know, the first time you experienced your the making or molding with clay. Hmm. That's a really nice moment to think about. And I had, like we all do, a lot of experience with clay and ceramics just from everyday life, um, especially in my home. There were two uh, maybe experiences that lead up to the one that um, that I'll get to in your yes. question in just a second. And the first is that my um, my mother collected uh, Danish stoneware pottery in the 70s when I was growing up. When we went on a family camping trip nearby, there was a little uh, Danish settlement in California called Solvang. And uh, every year we collected one more piece. So on our uh, dinner table, there was a variety of pottery. None of it matched. <laughs> and I loved all of that, that each piece was very unique. Each piece was kind of individually um, kind of given its character. I loved that. And then in junior high school, my sister had made a coil bowl for me that I ate my cereal out of then every day. And then kind of as I as I ate my cereal, you know, I held it. It was clunky. It was heavy. It was not um, a very efficient bowl. But I loved uh, feeling um, in my hand that uh, the feel of the coils that she formed in her hands and um, and the smoothness of the glaze and I think those two experiences kind of really brought me to ceramics. Sure. Um, and then I tried it out in high school. I was really fortunate to have a wonderful teacher in high school that um, basically, I think I tried to recreate those uh, those stoneware vessels um, that, uh, that I had um, really admired um, on our table. That was probably the first uh, clay experience. Um, and so I thought I would become a production potter. Oh, really? And I, and I eventually went to Japan um, after uh, undergraduate um, studies to become a production potter and to learn pottery. Yeah, oh. I was very interested in the handmade, um, the quality of um, 
uh, uniqueness that they brought to each piece. And there's a movement in Japan called the Minge movement, um, a folk art movement that really venerated uh, the handmade. And so that um, that's what I went to kind of go find. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So how did you go from wanting to be a production potter to really just like this experimentation within a laboratory setting almost that, you know, from what I've seen of videos of your, your studio and whatnot, it has, I mean, to Camila's point of looking at your website from what I remember prior, it does feel so like exploratory and, you know, science, like how did you make that transition? Uh, I think that's a good question. Uh, when I came back from Japan, I continued studying a little bit to fill up um, knowledge that I couldn't gain there. I did gain a lot of skill, I think, in making, working with clay. It's really um, a beautiful place to be um, when one loves ceramics. Uh, Japan is maybe the heaven uh, for ceramicists. And I started taking some classes at Cal State Long Beach and the throwing class was full. So I couldn't enroll. And I, the only class that was open was a slip casting class. It was the last thing that I thought I wanted to do ever was to make a mold and to repeat the form out of a mold. I had just come from this being infused with the individual handmade object. But what I discovered in that class was this kind of different states of clay, clay becoming, uh, going from liquid to solid and uh, going from wet to dry because you see that kind of happening in the mold very quickly. And it was these kinds of moments of, of change that, you know, I'm ultimately kind of fascinated with this changing states of matter. And the studio at Cal State Long Beach was really permissive. There was a lot of room for experimentation and, Ultimately, I think I felt kind of freed from being um, being required to make a specific form, like a cup or a bowl. I kind of felt liberated from that uh, there. And while I uh, I admire uh, pottery so very much, and I think it's an important part of of our daily life, of our art world, uh, it just uh, was ultimately not the direction that I, um, that I pursued. So it was really this kind of uh, freedom, I think, in that studio. And maybe that has partially led to the approach I take as a, um, as a teacher myself now to give room for, um, uh, for the experimentation. Maybe, yeah, classroom is kind of an extension of that, maybe. Yeah, it's, and that's what I feel like a lot of artists or a lot of what a, what a lot of art is, is just kind of allowing these the quote unquote mistakes to happen or, you know, just kind of just going with the flow and letting it's just to see what what comes of this. What happens? <laughs> yeah, it's so true. And in fact, those pieces like the disc piece, it, you could probably say it's like a it's like a compilation of all the mistakes that you could possibly make in ceramics. <laughs> um, you know, it starts off as a bowl form and it doesn't stay there. It slumps flat. It uh, the glaze uh, gets its color from adding too little um, colorants into it, so they streak out and they don't stay blended in the glaze. The glaze is cracked and crazed, and yeah, all the, all the things you could do wrong <laughs> are the places maybe where you see material kind of, um, uh, how can I put it, Um, exerting itself. Mm. So 
I think maybe why my work seems so different from the product, the kind of direction I started off as, um, started off in as a production potter, um, is that um, uh, I've stepped back quite a lot and allowed the materials to kind of um, ultimately make the form. Well, what do you find more compelling, the material or the process? Hmm. I'm not sure that I could separate out those two because I think the material is, uh, in the ways that I'm using them, is are, are continuously undergoing a process. Um, and when I was beginning to go uh, into doing the kind of more ephemeral and transitory work, I found myself needing kind of an anchor. The work would just, it would change so much in the studio, it would almost kind of disappear, right? You'd come in the next day and the thing would be not there anymore. As it was, it would be new. Mm. And so I felt like the fired work was this way to kind of um, freeze the moment. Um, And that's maybe what I'm trying to capture in those pieces is kind of like a, an instant. Um, and those kind of were pieces that I could kind of refer back to regularly. And that balanced out the pieces that were in process all the time. Not, I mean, that's beautiful. Um, one of the things we talk a lot about at contemporary crafts and if you you or anyone else who's listening has already heard our podcast, we kind of ask is um, what is the line between art and craft? And I think, you know, certainly when I look at or experience your work, you know, I ask myself, this is work that asks, is there a line? Like it's clearly art, but it's made and rooted in traditional craft material in some way or another. So I'm, I'm just curious, um, why clay for you? Like, was it those personal relationships that you had with it? Was it that the material did what you were looking to do? Like of all the things you could have worked with, how did you really land on clay? It was maybe the early experiences that I described that kind of brought me to clay. But I think that this ever changeability of this material and the endless possibilities in the medium, the endless combinations of, of materials that make glaze, the endless combinations of, uh, of natural materials that end up making clay around the world. If you go from one place to another, the clay will be different as it naturally occurs. It cannot be synthesized. It's an it's a it's one of those materials that can we only get um, through natural means, and maybe just from my own personal interest in these questions around our relationship with the natural world and that kind of thing, clay just seemed to really suit uh, that subject matter, and um, perhaps my training in um, the medium has just led me to be kind of continually um, challenged by it. You'd think that perhaps you'd get to know this material and ultimately master it, but it uh, it is one that is very slippery, uh, no pun intended. Um, and it, uh, it is kind of uh, 
constantly uh, revealing things to you. It's constantly challenging. It's, it's, um, it's the lack of control in this medium that attracts many people to it. I think the fact that you can, you can do some things, but you don't do everything uh, in order to ultimately create the peace. There's something really mysterious and wonderful about that. Yeah. I mean, working with clay, um, you know, I, it's so frustrating sometimes of like, you can never finish and feel that you know what the outcome is going to be until you open the kiln. You really just really don't know. So it's just like <laughs> this magical the, little surprise every time you're, you're done. Huh? But it's like, Christmas like so wholly embrace that, which is just, I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah. I think, you know, you, you kind of develop a humble quality and um, you also, it, it's kind of like the art of prediction as well. So you can kind of estimate um, a good friend of mine said there is no such thing as a glaze test because you ultimately may get something else. Once you put that same glaze on another piece in another kiln at a different time with wow. different atmospheric conditions and different length of firing or a different person firing it. And depending on the equipment that you use that influences it as well. So it's, uh, um, it's a really, I think it because there is this level of complication it's just kind of ever fascinating. It sounds like my experience with baking um, it's, <laughs> which is, you know, it's just kind of one of those things. It's just like, you just never know. Um, did you, did you find it frustrating in the beginning of like having all of these elements that just could go awry, like all these variables? Hmm, that's interesting. I think maybe there's just a lot of excitement at the beginning. So, hmm. you know, when you do get something out that surprises you it's just really exciting I think maybe it's more frustrating the more you go on mm, <laughs> because gotcha. you think you should you think you should know how it's going to work or oh I should have remembered that All and right. so that's what's frustrating <laughs> but when was it that you accepted that you're an artist hmm. um, maybe I didn't adopt the title artist for a long time. And I maybe thought of myself as a maker. Mm -hmm. um, I liked making things. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm not sure of the exact moment. That's a really good question. But there was a moment uh, that I described earlier of kind of feeling liberated from a particular form linked to pottery. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe the moment that I thought, ah, maybe I'm not a potter and I'm an artist. Um, but I think maybe those two terms are also interchangeable. Right. So, yeah. It's just sometimes a lot of people have this heavy notion surrounded with the word artist. Like it just kind of just it feels heavier and uh, more defined than anything else. Um, that's at least my own personal experience with it. It's like it took me years to go ahead and accept and, and feel comfortable calling myself an artist in public or in mixed company. Um, mm -hmm. Do you recall your first exhibit? Well, it was in Japan. 
Um, and I had, uh, I had joined some pottery studios. I didn't uh, apprentice as a traditional apprentice in Japan because as a foreigner, it's quite difficult to do that, let alone being a woman at that point in time um, in the early 90s. So I was a part of several studios and I also joined a weaving studio uh, because I also have a background uh, growing up uh, sewing and in some of my installations, I'm also incorporating uh, fibers and materials. And I joined a hand weaving studio and we did a pit firing out in a field in Japan. And then those pieces were, were um, exhibited at the gallery in the studio uh, in conjunction with the weaving studio. So that was the first one. What were you never were you extremely nervous about it? It was a group show, so gotcha. it was really celebratory. Gotcha. <laughs> Not too much pressure, I suppose. <laughs> um so kind of different, but you know, in, in the vein of like how things started and how you've come to where you are, uh, have you had any mentors in the field? And if so, why do you consider those individuals to be a mentor? Well, ceramics maybe is one of the most uh, community oriented uh, uh, media, I think. We are often in groups working around equipment uh, that is expensive to set up by oneself. And I ended up, I think, in a lot of different educational settings to have studio access and just to learn uh, more because there's just a kind of ongoing process in ceramics too. Uh, there's just a lot to know. And when I returned from Japan, I, I landed at Cal State Long Beach and, and I think maybe um, my most uh, kind of important mentor that maybe um, set the, the um, conditions in a sense for my future was Tony Marsh at Cal State Long Beach, who had uh, created a, a program there that just was um, full of potential. And I think I, I got there uh, at a moment when he also um, had uh, a lot of experience himself as an artist and uh, an um, educator. And in very small, kind of quiet moments, gave me um, encouragement and um, challenges that really were um, important. Um, and I think still today, uh, I, I ran into him at an Enseca a few years ago, and still he's, uh, he's challenging, challenging me uh, <laughs> uh, with my work. <laughs> Not, you know, no, no pats on the back, right? Just, uh, <laughs> and what about this? Right, right. <laughs> so that's a, I think that's a mentor for life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One who just continually pushes you to uh, go yeah. out and do one more step. Let's see what, it, what, you, exactly. what you do. <laughs> <laughs> but there's been so many important, uh, important people and also a lot of important women in our field that have been, you know, models for me, um, Kristen Morgan, also a teacher at Long Beach, Andrea Gill, one of my instructors um, in graduate school, 
um, Kim Dickey, who was a visiting artist while I was an undergrad, and um, also just these models of, of women um, uh, living the life of an artist. Mm. I think that uh, has been important to see. Yeah, I, I think that um, that that's very helpful for anyone who is even considering to like go into that realm. It's like to see someone actually living it and, and you know, just yes. like what that looks like, being able to visualize Absolutely. it. Um, of all of your pieces, if you can, which one would you find, which one, one of the most exciting for you, like in, mm. in just like in the, the end or the journey to it or, you know, the creation of it? That's a really good question. Um, there was a piece that was a, a precursor to the one at um, Contemporary Craft. And this was at the um, Milwaukee Art Museum, which is a incredible space uh, designed by Santiago Calatrava, which is, uh, we were in a hallway that uh, it was not kind of like an ordinary hallway. It was kind of like a belly of a whale. It was, it was along the ocean, I'm not along the lake. Sorry about that. Milwaukee. Um, and the, the supports on the museum were like these ribs, um, uh, as they're described in architecture too, uh, using the kind of like vocabulary of the body. Wow. Um, and uh, really dramatic uh, architecture that I could then work with in terms of an installation. So where this architecture was feeling very much like a, a kind of like a whale skeleton. Then my installation was kind of like these, um, uh, inserted the kind of processes or like kind of related maybe to the processes of the body, um, inside that space. So it was really a dramatic space, really exciting to respond to that architecture, which is, um, which is part of the task in installation is to try to integrate the work into the situation where it is. So it feels like it's, um, part and parcel with the space. Yeah. I'm sure that can be extremely challenging, you know, but, and you know, a lot of times, I mean, I'm sure most of the time it's absolutely worth it because it's like, you know, you got this brand new canvas sort of, and it's just <laughs> like, see yeah, what, it's see exciting what <laughs> yeah, you know, we kind of like uh, practice in the studio, but then when you get to the site, you know, it's brand new for me, just like it is everyone who is around uh, around me helping with these installations, which uh, is an important part of the process that wasn't something that I foresaw with installation that it's not just, uh, or at least the scale that I've been working at is not just to... Uh, um, me who's involved it's a whole team and it was the same at contemporary craft um there were um lots of the staff and relatives of the staff who mm. came in and helped and getting to know everyone there and to work together for the common um you know kind of purpose is really a beautiful part of the process for me and it's it's not one that i planned but it's definitely been a benefit of the whole thing Linda, I know that Camila has another question for you. It's like our standard question, but as we're wrapping up, I do just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's always a joy. And I really, I really appreciate hearing more about your process and, you know, hope that there's another opportunity for us to work together in the future. So thank you. I hope so too. My time at Contemporary Craft is a definite highlight for me. 
Well, before I get to the standard question, I also had another question that just came to me. I was oh, like, sorry, I didn't mean to, to, to rush. <laughs> <laughs> totally fine. Um, just out of curiosity, is there any? What are you working on currently? If or are you just? Is there anything or that that you can talk about? Or you know, some people like to keep it under wraps. Yeah, <laughs> films are firing downstairs right okay. now. I'm working for a show here in Montreal um, at La Guilde Gallery. And uh, that's happening in September. It's a series of uh, discs again, but they're quite different. They're a different series of glazes called oil spot glazes, which are made with iron. And the iron kind of uh, is, is applied in layers. And as the glazes boil or kind of bubble in the kiln, uh, the lower layers kind of um, seep up through the upper layers and create these uh, kind of oil spots in the surface so they um in a way they look kind of like uh, galaxial kind of like stars in the sky or something like that that's amazing i find yeah i find your work and your process and you extremely interesting um i, w- I look forward to seeing it in person um someday soon so to our standard question and uh hopefully i i believe that um rachel sent this to you beforehand we like to ask our artists what are the three songs that you would pick to describe your work? And this is always a fun, fun time. <laughs> this is a fun question. Um, <laughs> maybe I'm going to hearken a little bit to your experience in the kitchen and mention <laughs> that there's a lot of analogies with cooking and ceramics. So the first song I might say is soup by E.C. Wood. Um, So uh, yeah, again, there's lots of food metaphors in ceramics and it's just a really fun song. So so there's one. Um, Maybe the next one would be Gooey by Glass Animals. Um, In this song, uh, and these songs are actually, you know, a lot about relationships and that kind of thing. It's maybe not that aspect that's so linked to my work, but there's this reference to uh, um, an icy gooey womb (laughs) and (laughs) uh, icky gooey womb rather. (laughs) Um, And that kind of like uh, um, uh, body quality that we were talking about earlier with the biology. Mm. That's kind of, it's both kind of maybe repulsive, but also um, fascinating right. and uh, mesmerizing. That's kind of um, the idea there with that one. And then <laughs> um, <laughs> the last uh, tangential connection with my work would be uh, Bug Collector uh, by Haley Hendricks. Uh, and that maybe is a little bit more obscure because we didn't talk about this at all, but there's maybe a, a series of works that I've been doing that's more kind of oriented towards public uh, public uh, art. And um, and it involves making little ceramic insects. Really? I made a series of cockroaches, made a series of slugs, these kinds of insects that maybe usually really repulse us and um, make them, try to make them as you know, um, gorgeous and irresistible with uh, crystalline glazes and and uh, redeem them a little bit and just kind of remind us how important uh, every tiny bit of our ecosystem is ultimately. And so those little figures kind of 
um, are something easy maybe to relate to. And so they are these uh, yeah, works that end up in a bit more kind of public venues. So I did so, see that, right? Like on your website, I'm looking at Quantum Bloom. Are, are those the, yes. the cockroaches in which you speak of? They are. <laughs> <laughs> the bugs themselves. Do, was there a lot of um, real life study that you had to do with, with the bugs and stuff? Like, I did because, you know, I just started. And there is a follow up question. I'm just I'm sorry. I'm just, bugs are just like, that's not my. <laughs> I'm, oh, this yeah. Is, this is fascinating to me. Like. <laughs> I've gotten lots of, you know, kind of like confessionals from folks who actually really love um, cockroaches, like, and uh, then some who, you know, they're kind of traumatic stories with them. So, again, there's this aspect to the work that ends up being very communal somehow, even though um, it's centered around these objects. So, um yeah, I did go to natural history museums and uh, and study, you know, uh, bugs to kind of understand their anatomy. Photographs didn't quite work to make right. the make them dimensionally, so they're not any specific exact bug. Right. But, uh, but we get the point, basically, is what you're saying. Like the public, we, we get it. We get know, what's in there. <laughs> there was one viewer who walked in the gallery, like jumped five feet in the air, screamed and ran out. That is me. That maybe this was. <laughs> <laughs> that is me. <laughs> so, um, so they did maybe kind of they were they were covered in salt water, so they mm. were really wet and kind of glistening in the light. So they might have looked like they were kind of Moving you know person. a little bit of movement or something. But <laughs> wow, I didn't uh, <laughs> um, have the real ones there. And you said this is also part of a public arts, a, a public art pieces or public artworks. Yeah, there's been a chance to, and even recently this summer out in um, the countryside in Quebec to set them out in um, kind of outdoor spaces, outdoor uh, urban spaces as well, wow. and um, uh, kind of relate to histories of sites um, and draw attention to yeah these ideas that are um, percolating in the work about transformation and. <sighs> well, holy cats! Well. <laughs> Thank you, Linda, for taking us oh, on this journey. Sure. <laughs> this, is, this has been very educational and inspirational. Thank you so much for taking the time. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, and I hope to see all of you at Contemporary Craft before again before too long. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Linda. Okay, make sure you all join us for our next episode. During the next episode, we'll be talking with the Transformation 11 Works in Glass Raphael Prize winner. But because that person isn't announced yet, you will have to wait and see. You'll tune in and listen and learn and enjoy another um, story and journey with another wonderful artist. 